If you will, begin turning in your Bibles to John chapter 6. Today we're going to be looking at verses 22 through 51. This is often called the Bread of Life Discourse. So we're going to spend a couple of weeks here, actually. Before we do that, let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask for his help. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, we pray that you would give us wisdom, give us understanding, uh, give us mercy. Your word is living and active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, and it cuts directly to our souls. And so we pray that you would do that even now, that you would convict us as we read your word, as we study your word together. You would show us where our sin is, that we might cast it off and follow you. Teach us more about you. Teach us more about your son. Teach us more how we should live in light of the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I read this passage, we uh, last week we talked, or last time we were together, we talked about the feeding of the 5,000 and this group of people that kind of wandered up and ate. And in this passage, we're going to look at a group of people that kind of follow Jesus around and look for more food. And so it makes me think of, uh, kind of think of stray cats. I know it's strange. But you've probably heard this adage, you should never feed a stray cat. And because when you feed a cat, they will, they will love you unconditionally. Because they pretty much only think of food and sleeping where they're going to get their food, where they're going to get their next nap. And that's about what they think about. And so if you can fix the food part of a cat's life equation, that cat will always come back. And it will even bring friends. And it will it will uh, have friends, like birth them, too. And so uh, we own two cats. And cats can be great pets when they're taken care of. And we, we love our cats. Um, but... We also love other cats in that we can't we don't we can't stand to see a, a cat starving or not being able, able to eat or whatever. So we sometimes we'll feed the community cats. That's what I call them. Um, I don't like them messing with my animals, and they usually don't. But I can't stand the idea of it starving to death or being mistreated. So I'll feed them whatever we have laying around. But they can be a problem. Feeding them is not a good idea. I mean. Even just from a non-colloquial like idea, it's just not a good idea from the ecology standpoint. They, 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 they jump around to numerous places. They'll form this routine. Animals that eat lots of food are able to reproduce lots at rapid rates, and so they make more stray cat mouths, which can eventually get out of hand in a community. And you have a problem. Humans and cats both have a problem at that point. And so when I think of this story, I think of this this idea of stray cats. They're just like these stray cats. They're following Jesus across the water because Jesus fed them. And they may never own up to that themselves, but Jesus makes sure that we understand their motive as we read this passage. And I think it really helps us to see our own motives in coming to Jesus a lot clearer, or it should help us. Because many times... We are just like the stray cat in that we are willing to follow something for a temporary gain or a temporary fix. 
I mean, this is the heart of drug and alcohol addictions. This is at the heart of and problems with fear of man issues like codependency and anxiety. We search out a source of a quick fix. And so we can get kind of to the next point. And this is what we do in our sin. Every single one of our sins is tied to this idea. Jesus commands us, however, in this passage to work for food that endures to eternal life. And so we're going to consider this idea in the text today, and we're going to look at this from three points, that the work of God is to believe in Jesus, that those whom the Father has given to Jesus will believe in him, and those whom the Father has given to Jesus will live forever. So as we consider those three points, let's read the text, John six twenty-two through 51. Let's stand together in honor of God's word. John chapter 6, 22 through 51. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into boats and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do, that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, but I said that to you, and you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, do not not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. And they said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, 
and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone who has seen the Father, except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that comes down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give him, or that I give for the life of the world, is my flesh. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So for just a bit of background, again, kind of where we came from, Jesus fed 5,000 people, or 5,000 men, plus women and children, so a lot more than that. He walked on water, remember, and he got into the disciples' boat, and they were immediately to where they were going on the other side. And the, the next day, the people kind of get up, and they realize that Jesus is gone. And it doesn't really make sense, because there was one boat, and they saw the disciples get into that boat, and not Jesus. And so they're wondering, well, where is Jesus? However, their stomachs are grumbling. So they get into the boat and they head to the other side in this direction of Capernaum. And when they found him, they had this odd question for him, considering their underlying motives, which Jesus will get right to. When did you come here? Kind of an odd question. They didn't know how he got there, but more importantly, they were hoping that they could get into this conversation, kind of a food conversation through the back door. You know, like, maybe if I start talking small talk with Jesus, maybe he'll start talking about food with me. It's a sneaky way of asking for some more food. Jesus, of course, figures this out because he knows the thoughts and feelings of every man, woman, and child because he is their creator. And he said, not because you saw the signs but because you ate the loaves and had your fill, that's why you came and found me. Not because you saw those things that testified to my legitimacy. Remember we talked about that. That the signs testified to the legitimacy of Christ as the creator and Lord and God of the universe. That's not why they followed him. But because they could have some more food. Because the other day, they like he just made food appear. And they got to eat, and it was good. Not because he has something eternal to offer them, but because he can give them something that might satisfy them until lunch. Remember with Jesus, the conversation always leaves the mundane, and it goes towards the eternal. This is a great model for us, by the way leaving the mundane and going towards the eternal. And he says to them, Do not work for food that perishes, but for food that endures to eternal life, which only I can give you. This should quickly remind us of another story that we went over in John 4, the idea of the woman at the well who was there for water, and Jesus offers her living water, that she will never be thirsty again, versus just simply water from the well. And so this natural follow-up, if he says, don't work for food, but work for that which endures for eternal life, the natural follow-up question is, what is the work of God? 
And they ask that. And so Jesus' answer is our first point. The work of God is that you believe in him whom he has sent. The work that you do and the work that you should be doing is believing in the one whom he has sent, Jesus Christ. The people are predictable here. What do they say when Jesus says, this is the work that you should be doing? Believe in the one whom he has sent. Well, then what sign do you show us that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Because see, our fathers, they they made bread come down from heaven. They just forgot the story. So basically what they're saying, Jesus, if you want us to believe you, well, give us something. Before we criticize these people too quickly, let's consider some other prayers that you've probably heard or said. I know I've heard them and said them. Lord, I promise I'll serve you and love you if you'll just do blank. Lord, if you're real, show me by now by doing this, whatever it is. Doesn't it almost seem like we, just like the people here in this passage, sometimes treat our Lord Jesus like a circus act? He performs acts for us. We give him a treat, and that treat is but believing in him because he needs us to do that. He's somehow satiated by our belief in him. I mean, this is a common idea, unfortunately, and you hear things like this, sadly, from pulpits. Jesus is yearning for you. You're breaking his heart by not believing in him. Please believe in him today. He needs you. He's crying out for you. Dr. Vody Bochum is a Reformed Baptist pastor. He's a very fiery uh, pastor. I highly recommend him. He uh, preached this idea, and he called it the sissified, needy Jesus. And he talked about this Jesus that is needy and needs people to believe in him and needs people to, to trust in him so that he can do things for them. And he followed up by reading from Revelation 19, and let me read that passage for you, so please turn there with me. Revelation 19. I wish that uh, Dr. Bochum could come here and read this for us because his voice is much more booming than mine. Um, Revelation 19, 11 through 21. This is a picture of Jesus Christ. This sissified, needy Jesus that needs us. Revelation 19, starting at verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe... And on his thigh he has the name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. 
Then I saw a great angel standing in the sun with a loud voice. He called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, come gather for the great supper of the Lord. Eat the flesh of the kings, the flesh of the captains, the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of the horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who is sitting on the horse against his army. And the beast was captured with it, the false prophet, who in his presence had done the signs that deceived those who had received the mark of the beast. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged on their flesh. Is this one that is needy? Is this one that is sissified? He rides a white horse. His armies are laid out before him so that the birds are gorged on their flesh. Or the, the opposing armies. This is not one who is a circus act. Who simply does things so that we can have things. This is the one whom the people say, show us a sign. But listen as he condemns them. Look at verses 32 and following of John 6 again. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And listen to what Jesus says here. It sounds like they're all of a sudden like converting and saying, well, we want that bread, yet they just want some bread. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. But I said that to you, and you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. You have seen me. You have seen me do works. You saw me take that little boy's lunch and turn it into a feast for all of you. And yet you do not believe. You cannot have eternal life because you do not believe. You will surely die in your trespasses and your sins. Sir, give us this bread always. It sounds just like John 4. Sir, give me this water to drink so that I won't have to come back to this well and be embarrassed anymore. Sir, give us this bread always so we won't have to follow you anymore to get bread. We'll talk more about this statement in a minute. I am the bread of life, where Jesus says. But I want to talk about these people first, because we want what Jesus has to give to us. Treating him like we treat the idols in our lives. But we don't want to bow the knee. I mean, consider addictions, whatever they are, alcohol, pornography, food, whatever. We want what they give us. They give us good feelings. They give us temporary relief from the world. They satisfy us until lunch. But we don't want what comes along with these things, grief and sadness. Because when you bow the knee to alcohol or pornography or any other kind of addiction, you get grief and sadness. They are only gods that can punish you for all eternity. 
Sure, they satisfy you just for a little bit, but they cannot satisfy you for eternity. Then consider Jesus, who gives us eternal relief from the world, who has a promise that we can endure. I mean, consider Psalm 30 that we read today, from Psalm 30 there. With him there is joy at the end. Though the sorrow may last for the night, there is joy in the morning, because he alone offers us eternal life. However, it comes at a price. What do we have to do? We have to bow the knee. We have to offer him our lives. We have to say, take my whole life. You are my Lord. We must believe in him. We must trust in him alone for our salvation. We must call upon him, call upon his name as the one and only God, casting aside all the idols that are in our lives, turning in him in faith and repentance. And so if you're here and you don't believe, this is for you. Call upon the name of the Lord, Jesus, and be saved. There is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved. That is the name of Jesus Christ. And if you're here and you do believe, friends, Christians, this is for you. This is the work that you have to do on this earth. Believe in him whom he has sent. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we easily get ensnared by anything that masquerades itself as a quick fix, as an easy answer. Because we are also persuaded that we are the God of our own universe. And so we turn to these other things. And so as believer, this is the, as believers, this is the struggle that we have on this earth. A continual struggle. And to continually kneel before the God of the universe, before the throne of grace and repentance, and receive his forgiveness. We have to remember that we need that. We have to remember the gospel. We, the work that we do is a daily dependence on the gospel so that we can remember that Jesus alone saves us. Not for some quick fix food for the day, but a food that endures to eternal life. And don't hear me saying that we're working for our salvation because that's not at all what we're doing. He saves us even while we were still sinners. But here, now that we're saved, the work that we do is to believe the gospel every single day. This continual belief in the gospel sanctifies us. It changes those sinful habits and makes us more and more like our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory of God. So Christian, remember that you've been called to trust alone in the name of Jesus Christ. And so the next point is, those whom the Father has given to Jesus will believe in him. And so this whole idea, the work of God is to believe in the one whom he has sent. And so our natural question should be what? Who can believe in him? Who can do that? Because it seems as it seems as if Jesus is anticipating this question as he goes on. And look at verse forty four. Not uh, excuse me, not verse forty four, verse thirty seven. It seems like he's anticipating this question. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And so, what could he mean? All that the Father gives to me will come to me. Well, let's look at verse 44. 
No one can come to me. No one can come to me unless the Father who has sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. So, those whom the Father draws to himself are the ones whom he has given to the Son. Who are these? Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 through 6. Who are these whom the Father is drawing to himself and giving to the Son? I'll just start with verse 3, actually, verse 3 through 6. Blessed be the God and Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Who are these that he's drawing to himself and now giving to the Son to raise up on the last day? It's those whom he has elected from the foundations of the earth. Those who will be adopted as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. And so, question, why do we have a problem with this idea? This is a very prevalent concept in Scripture, that God has decided from the foundations of the earth to set aside a people for himself, and at an appointed time, he would come and deliver those people. We did an entire series in Covenant Theology. That was the main idea of that whole series. And who did he start with? He started with Abraham. And Abraham was a devout Christian just waiting for God to come to him. No, he was an idolater from Ur of the Chaldees. And God went to him and said, Through you, Abraham, I will bless every nation on the earth. And I will make for you a people. And it's through those people that the whole world will be blessed. And it's through him that who would come. Jesus Christ. And when the angel came to Mary, what did, what did he, what did she, or the angel, he, she, the angel say to Mary, you will name him Jesus. Why? Because he's coming to save his people from their sins. He's coming to do that which God has planned from the very beginning, from the foundations of the earth. That is the story of scripture. But how have we changed it? We have changed it to say, well, God lets us know that he's in charge and that he wants us to be his. And now it's completely up to you. God is waiting for you. Newsflash, God doesn't wait. He is completely sovereign over every single decision made and not made, including our salvation. He waits on nothing. Everything happens exactly when he wants it to happen. From the foundation of the earth, he chose a people for himself. Those are his words, not mine. And we have a problem with this, again, because we think God is only here to provide stuff for me, and ultimately, I'm my own sovereign agent. I'm free to choose or to choose otherwise, free from God's ability to sway my freedom. 
we have a problem with this because we're sinners. And we want the opposite of the truth. We want God's throne for ourselves. We want him to answer to us. Jesus, why would you go across the river? We're hungry. We want him to answer to us. Again, our only response to this sinful desire within us is to do what? Repent. Acknowledge the truth of God's word. And I recognize this as a hard teaching. Because it takes the control away from us. And gives it solely to God where it should rest. We like God to be in control when he's raining down bread from heaven. We love that. But we don't want his control in our lives when our lives are at stake. But he is only ever sovereign over all things. He can't be any other way. And to say that man has the ability to choose apart from God's will is to say that man is on equal footing with God. And isn't this the exact teaching of Satan in Genesis 3? He doesn't want you to believe this because he knows that you will rule over him. Take the fruit, eat it. We hold on to the idea of the sovereignty of man to one degree or another because we're sinners. We believe that we are gods. And so the admonition here is believe in Scripture. Believe what we've just read this morning, even though it's hard, that God is in control. He calls people to himself. They will believe because he has called them, and they will be saved. I mean, for me personally, when I finally saw this in Scripture, after years of being taught otherwise, I experienced a freedom that I had never known. I experienced just this weight off my shoulders. You mean I'm not responsible for my own salvation? Oh, thank the Lord. Coming to this realization that you are powerless is very humbling and it is very liberating. And so lastly, in that same vein, those whom the Father has given to Jesus will live forever. Look at verse 47. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. This is not a new idea in John. We've read this over and over. We've seen this language a lot in this book. We'll see it a lot as we go forward. Most notably, we saw this in John's conversation with Nicodemus in John 3, John 3.16. Whoever believes will have eternal life. We know this. And then what does Jesus say right after this? I am the bread of life. Jesus' response to the people talking about how their fathers made bread come from heaven in the wilderness was to call himself the bread of life. And this isn't just a simple statement, but this is an ascription to deity. Remember, we read from Exodus 3, 14 and 15, where Moses says, Who shall I say sent me? And God says, I am that I am has sent you. And what is Jesus saying here when he uses this Greek phrase, ego ami? He is saying, I am the bread of life. This is a reference to himself as the self-existent, eternal God of the Old Testament, 
Jesus is God Almighty. And he's saying that right here with these words. I am the bread of life. And the people have a problem with this. Of course they do. I mean, isn't this Jesus, the little boy who grew up down the street? I mean, I know where he lived. I watched him play when he was little. We know his parents, Mary and Joseph. You know, we went to all the meetings with them. We saw them. You know, that's, that's just Jesus, right? What does this mean that he's come down from heaven? What does he mean when he says, I am the bread of life? What is Jesus comparing himself to here? Well, our fathers made bread in the wilderness, you see, and they ate it. And Turn to Exodus chapter 16. We'll see what Jesus is comparing himself to here. Remember, the New Testament is just a roadmap to the Old Testament. What is he comparing himself to here? Exodus 16, verses 31 through 36. We read the first part of the story last time we were together. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. This is this bread that came from heaven. And it was like coriander seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. And Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout the generations, so that they may see the bread from which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. And Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The people of Israel ate manna for 40 years till they came to an to a habitable land. They ate manna till they came to the border of Canaan. They ate manna until when? Until they walked into the promised land. Until the Lord brought them to the place where they were going. They waited all that time for something that would last. What happened to manna when the sun came up? It melted away. What happened if they tried to store more of it than they were directed? It got filled with worms. It was just a temporary thing that the Lord was giving them because it couldn't last. The sin of the people would not let it last. But the Lord had a plan of redemption. One day, he would guarantee salvation for his people. He would give them a bread that would last forever. And he would guarantee salvation for his people because he would offer up his own righteousness in exchange for their sins. And this is the plan that Jesus comes to execute through his death and through his resurrection. Jesus, once again, is a better picture of something that we see in the Old Testament. He's a better picture of this bread come from heaven, which only lasted for a time. And then it was gone. I mean, look at 48 through 51 in John 6. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. And what did they do? They died. This bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that has come down from heaven. Why did they, they ate wilderness and they ate bread in the wilderness and they died. Why? Because that bread only pointed forward to the thing that they could partake of and never die. 
Jesus Christ. And so like stray cats, they followed Jesus across the lake for food, but they found out that he offers something much more than that. Like stray cats, we often come to Jesus for a handout. But he offers us eternal life. He offers us the promise that we are his forever, that we can never be lost. Look at verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. That he will raise us up on the last day. Every single bit of this is meaningless if this isn't true. Turn to 1 Corinthians 15 real quick. Almost done. 1 Corinthians 15. Paul gets this. When he writes to the Corinthians, he understands this concept. Look at verse 12. 15 verses, verse 12 through 19. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection from the dead? But if there is no resurrection from the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are not even found to be, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ from whom he did not raise, if it is true that he, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile, and, you're, and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If, Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You get that. If Jesus will not take those people whom he has set aside for himself, whom he has come to save, and he does not raise them up on the last day, we are to be pitied. Because we believe in something that there is no hope. But if you keep going, verses 22 through 20, there in 1 Corinthians, we are made alive, and we have hope not only for this life, but for the life to come. Because everyone who believes will be with him for all eternity. That's the good news. So in conclusion, our Lord Jesus does not pull any punches in this text when he's dealing with these people that chased him across the lake for food. And we're going to see this, particularly next week, because he's going to go a step further with these people, and many of them are going to leave him. Many of his disciples are going to leave him. If you're an unbeliever, this might be a hard teaching, and I get that. That Jesus is your God, whether you like it or you don't. And if you don't believe in him, you earn his wrath. So what's the answer? Call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And if you're a believer... Take comfort that our Lord has come back because of his redemptive work and that we are his people and that we are doing his work. And the primary work, the work which shapes everything else that we do in our lives as believers 
is to believe in the one whom he has sent, Jesus Christ. Our continued belief in the gospel of Jesus Christ shapes us, it sanctifies us, it makes us less like stray cats looking for a handout, and more like servants of God serving him. Repent of your desire to be the God of your own life. Call upon the bread of life, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let's go to him in prayer. Lord Jesus, we come to you and we recognize that this text is difficult because we are just like the people that chased you for a handout. So Father, we pray that you would convict us of that sin, that you would show us where we might walk closer to you, help us to walk in your mercies anew every day, in your goodness, in your grace. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.